Hello, and welcome to a podcast from the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and today we're going to be talking about alcohol-related liver disease with the author of a new comment on the subject, Professor Nick Sharon. Professor Sharon, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Nick Sharon. I'm a liver doctor in Southampton and a professor of hepatology there. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. So we'll get straight on. So in terms of the burden of alcohol-related liver disease, how have the demographics shifted over time? So there are a whole number of different things that have been going on. The most important is an increase in liver mortality. Uh, It's increased fivefold since the 1970s. It's still going up. It's the only disease where mortality rates have increased significantly. If you look at all other diseases, mortality have gone down between... 20 and 80 percent. The majority of that increase is in patients with alcohol-related liver disease. There's also been an increase in people with obesity-related liver disease relatively recently over the last 10 years. So moving to your comment, uh, you talk about the importance of population screening with the uh, aim of increasing early diagnosis. Now what makes early diagnosis so important? Okay, so those, those are some of the other facts. So If you look at uh, the survival of liver admissions, and I've got data from Southampton, uh, from Plymouth, from Newcastle, Sunderland, and I've seen data from Copenhagen, uh, the survival of liver admissions hasn't increased in the last 20 years. Uh, In actual fact, if anything, survivals are dropping. So why is that? Well, we've known um, for all our working lives, really, that patients come in with liver disease, with bleeding esophageal varices, with ascites, fluid on their tummy, or bright yellow from acute on chronic liver failure. Those are end-stage complications of cirrhosis, and they each have a very high mortality. And the inevitable story from the patient is they didn't realize they had a liver problem. Because liver disease develops completely silently. There are no signs or symptoms of developing liver disease. And in addition to that, The tests that GPs currently do to pick up liver disease have sort of evolved historically and they're fine if you've got viral hepatitis or even if you have autoimmune hepatitis because they are necroinflammatory diseases, liver cells are being broken open and the enzymes are being released into the circulation. Obesity-related liver disease, alcohol-related liver disease, alcohol-related liver disease is about 85% of liver mortality, obesity is a further 5 or 10%. They're apoptotic diseases, the cell membranes remain intact, liver enzymes aren't released, and in actual fact as you move from having a fatty liver from alcohol to developing fibrosis, scarring and then cirrhosis, your liver enzyme levels drop, or at least your levels of ALT drop, which is the main enzyme that GPs historically used to detect liver disease. So uh, when we looked at 5,000 first admissions in Southampton of patients being admitted with cirrhosis for the very first time, we just simply looked to see if they'd been referred to a liver outpatients before that first admission. Of those that died, 75% had never been referred. When we looked at equivalent data for GPs, it's 85%. So we estimate that right now, between 75 and 85% of people with cirrhosis don't know they have liver disease. And so what is the UK's current approach to identifying these problem drinkers? Well, the the approach to identifying liver disease is to rely on people having elevated liver enzymes, and we know those enzymes aren't related to underlying cirrhosis. Most of those blood tests are done for people being put on statins or for people being generally unwell. Uh, A small proportion are done in heavy drinkers, but again, there's there's a sort of 
false reassurance in very heavy drinkers. If their liver enzymes aren't elevated, then the GPs don't worry. There is no systematic attempt to find liver disease earlier at this stage in clinical practice. Although in the first Lancet Commission report in 2014, the prime recommendation for that report was to strengthen the early detect the mechanisms for early detection uh, of liver disease, particularly in primary care, but also it's really important in secondary care. And so you also mentioned in your comment multidisciplinary alcohol care teams who work with at-risk patients in UK hospitals. How widespread are these teams currently? So um, talking to uh, Ian Armstrong at PHE this morning, he knows that between 60 and 70% of DGHs have some form of alcohol care team or alcohol liaison. He knows for sure that is. He knows that there are definitely about 5 to 7% of hospitals that don't have them, mm-hmm. and we're not sure about the data. So actually they're quite widespread. You know, it's a, it's been a sort of fashionable thing to do for hospitals to set up alcohol care teams. So would you say the evidence is strong that early identification and management by these teams improves patient health and in the long run saves money for the NHS? I think in in theory we know that getting a a liver diagnosis is a potent uh, mechanism to change your behaviour. So we know that if you do a brief intervention in primary care, which basically just involves telling somebody they're drinking a bit too much in a sort of structured way, then the numbers needed to treat for that are 1 in 10, a 10, so 1 in 10, so in other words, 10% of people will respond. If you're admitted to hospital with liver disease as a result of alcohol, then 50% of people will stop drinking as a result of that admission. Unfortunately, because they're being admitted late, 50% of that 50% will die before they benefit. The remaining 50% and a few extra who also stop drinking that tends to be a transformational event and we know that that's a transformational event because when you look at the mortality rates of those patients post admission the patients that we that we know carry on drinking inevitably they will all die over the next 10 years uh, in the patients who who stop drinking their survivals are actually flat after about 18 to 24 months and that's because the liver does have quite significant powers of regeneration at least in function if not in structure So there's a very good theoretical basis why making a liver diagnosis, capitalising on somebody being in hospital is a very good thing to do and is likely to to be effective. In fairness though, what we're lacking are the really, really strong randomised controlled trials to show that that's the case. So we have studies where they take cohorts before admission and after admission and they show that they're reduced but if you look at the natural history of admissions in liver disease they decline because people die and they stop drinking spontaneously. Uh, If you look at the studies that have controlled, compared cohorts of people with interventions and not interventions or one type of intervention, again you show an effect on drinking but none of those studies have shown an effect on readmissions and they're not randomized controlled trials. So we have a scenario where at the moment it's quite fashionable to set up these services. They almost certainly work. Okay, There's a very strong theoretical basis why they work, but we have a scenario where the numbers of care teams being shut down are the same as the new ones being generated. Because whenever you get into a competitive health environment, alcohol and liver disease always sink to the bottom because they're seen as self-inflicted diseases. So when you've got a trust or a CCG that wants to cut funding for, for a service, you can bet your bottom dollar that alcohol will be top of the, top of the list. 
And so in your view, what needs to happen to make early diagnosis a reality, to make it more widespread? I, I think there are a number of things that need to happen. Firstly, we need better technologies, and the technologies are now, are now they're starting to be there. So in terms, of, in terms of making that diagnosis of severe fibrosis or cirrhosis as opposed to simple fatty liver, we have good tests. We have uh, liver elastography, a fibro scan, a wobbly liver machine, as I call it. You ping the liver, measure how stiff it is, and that tells you where you are on that on that pathway, the common pathway for all liver diseases, from simple uh, fatty liver through to scarring and fibrosis. We have blood tests which look at the uh, the function of developing fibrosis. So we're looking at breakdown products of fibrosis, collagen, P3 peptide, hyaluronic acid combinations of those tests together so so we have those technologies they're not being used in primary care which is where they need to be used we're just in the process of writing up a study which we've done in Southampton's called the locate study and we uh, we screened uh, just over a thousand patients in primary care in high-risk groups so people drinking too much people with type 2 diabetes people with elevated inflammatory liver function markers we gave an intervention in 44%, so we found about 50 new cases of cirrhosis and about 150 new cases of progressive fibrosis, and we gave out 200 or so behavioural liver warnings to people who were developing early liver disease. So it's effective, but the problem with that approach is that the GP or the clinician has to think about liver disease and do a specific test. And so one of the strategies that we're working on uh, at the moment is whether we can use routine data that GPs already have to pick up uh, advanced liver disease cirrhosis in a community population and the indications are that uh, yes yes we can do that using the data that GPs already have so that's that's picking up liver disease um, the other side of the equation which sort of comes before that really is stopping people drinking hazardously or harmfully in the first place and brief intervention is a way of doing that and it's highly effective and cost-effective but again, the numbers needed to treat are 10. The most effective, uh, the most cost-effective, so cheap that it generates income for the government, is to, is to go back even further and to look at the drinking environment. And PHE have just done a, a big systematic review on that, which again was published, published in The Lancet. Looking at the strategies that really can uh, affect alcohol-related and liver mortality on a big scale. In other words, look at the drivers for that five-fold increase and start to reverse it and put it in the other direction. And the answers there are absolutely straightforward. The key driver is price or affordability or tax. Um, and, and we can show this, actually. There's a fantastic natural experiment that's been running in the UK um, for the last few decades in that liver mortality was increasing at around about 8% throughout the 1990s and the noughties. In 2008, that 8% increase suddenly changed trajectory and liver mortality started to go down. And in 2013, it changed back again and is now starting to go up. What happened? Well, two things. In 2008, we had the economic recession, the economic downturn, but we also had Alistair Darling introducing a 6% duty increase, followed by a 2% above inflation duty escalator. In terms of the affordability of alcohol, 80% of that was due to the tax changes and about 20% was due to the economic changes. And it had an immediate impact. And you see this immediate impact on liver mortality whenever you see a significant change in alcohol policy or consumption. So you saw it at the outbreak of the First World War, Second World War, in Gorbachev, Russia in 1985 with alcohol control policies. And it's really interesting because it might take 10 or 20 years to develop cirrhosis, 
but people die from acute on chronic liver failure as a result of their recent drinking. In 2013, all of those budgetary changes were repealed uh, and liver mortality is now on the increase again. Incidentally, that came with a cost to the Exchequer, so the repeal of those tax increases have cost the government £5 billion over five years, but you can discount that to £3.5 billion because of the increase in alcohol consumption. That's fascinating. So would you say it's important we bring in something like minimum unit pricing? Yeah, the, the advantage of minimum unit pricing is that it's exquisitely targeted at the really heavy drinkers because it only tackles the cheapest booze. So it doesn't put up uh, pr the price of a pint or a glass of wine in a pub because that's already you know, more than a pound in most cases. My patients with cirrhosis drink on average, okay, the median is four bottles of vodka a week, the mean is five bottles of vodka a week, and they drink the cheapest alcohol it's possible to find. So on average they're paying 30 pence. In actual fact, you can get alcohol for about 15 pence a unit. A uh, three litre bottle of 7.5% cider in Iceland is, the, is where to go if you're interested in finding the cheapest cider. Uh, so that's a really, we know that's an effective policy. They've had a minimum unit price.